With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hi everyone, welcome back. Michael Sandler here, your host on Inspire Nation. Do you love your corn, potatoes, beans and rice, and wish they just weren't starches so you could eat them to your heart's content? Well, if so, then do we have the myth-busting, turn things on their heads, no potato left unturned, starchy show for you. Warning, this show may be controversial and will definitely have you scratching your head. Your potato head, that is. 
Today we'll be talking with Dr. John McDougall, author of 12 national best-selling books, including The Start Solution, Eat the Foods You Love, Regain Your Health, and Lose the Weight for Good. Today we'll be talking about one of the true villains, scratch that, heroes, in food. <laughs> Starch, what it is, why it's supposedly not good for us, what the studies show, why you've never heard this before, and perhaps the shocking truth. For I want to get to the bottom of this, because I love my potatoes and with a bit of salt, but for years I wouldn't touch a single one. I've been high ketone, high fat, high veggies, lots of green smoothies, but always above and beyond everything else, low starch. And don't even get me started about the glycemic index. But today we'll talk about all of it in a mind-blowing, myth-busting show, nothing sacred today, and especially not the potato. Plus, we'll talk about the myths about soy, sodium, calcium, supplements, vitamin D, white rice, and even tanning beds. So welcome to the show, John. Are you ready to shine? I'm ready to shine. I just don't know whether I have that many words. <laughs> well, well, we'll see what you got. So let's back up the clock. We'll go back in a time machine just a little bit because uh, I'm fascinated how healthy you are now, and maybe you can you can share a, a little bit about your age and your health now. You weren't that way at 18. No, uh, I wasn't at 18. I'm uh, almost 69. I'll be 69 in a couple of months. And I've enjoyed pretty good, pretty good health, mm -hmm. I would say, uh, except for my bad start in life. Uh, I was raised by parents who believed that uh, the best way to make a child would be to fill them with uh, calcium and protein. And so our diet was uh, lots of meat and lots of dairy. And as a result, I was a sick kid, a little kid. I had uh, stomach pains and horrible constipation. Mm -hmm. At uh, seven, I lost my tonsils, as any good milk-drinking kid would. Uh, I got into my uh, <coughs> later years, the uh, early teens, and uh, I liked to play sports. Mm -hmm. I could run and things like that, but I was, I was no good. I, I just didn't have any endurance. And I didn't realize it was because I wasn't getting my carbohydrate. You know, like car carbohydrate loading. Yeah, people need to get. And then I got, and then I got my pimples when I was uh, you know, a little mid-teen, and that was a, a little embarrassing. Still, still had the stomach cramps. Uh, at 18, I went to college. Now, yep. when you go to college, you get free food when you're, in the, <laughs> yeah, when you're in the dormitory, and so that was kind of cool for me. I loved to eat, mm -hmm. so I could go through the cafeteria line in the dormitory, and I could get. Uh, you know, three plates of eggs if I wanted, or six pork chops, or whatever yep. I wanted. And it, it didn't, didn't do me in just those first three months in college. I'd been working on this for 18 years. And what happened is one morning in October of 1965, I woke up very fatigued. And as the day progressed, uh, the left side of my body uh, became very weak. And they put me in the hospital. Then they sent me to Grace, Grace Hospital in Detroit. And they did all kinds of tests on me, heart tests, brain tests, you know, spinal taps, whatever. And they finally decided that I'd had a, a massive stroke on the right side of my brain, which left me completely paralyzed. This is at 18? 18 years old, yeah, 1965. I was completely paralyzed. I, at the uh, end of two weeks, uh, you know, my, my, my monument was I could take uh, it up high enough in my, my thumb. I could yeah, move I my thumb. Yeah, you can see it on, on video there. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that, that's the best I could do. I couldn't move anything else wow. after two weeks in the hospital. 
but I was so sick of being in the hospital. I was so sick of the doctors telling me they didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know what was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. They didn't know when I was going to go home, and I wanted out of there. So I signed myself out against, um, against medical advice. And uh, I went right back, back to school. Now, before that, I had no aspirations of being a doctor. Uh, I came from a <clears throat> um, lower middle class family. And mm-hmm. in our home, a doctor was you know, next to God. And uh, I could never accomplish anything like that. But then I met all these doctors, and I saw what they did. And heck, I figured I could do what they're doing. They're just shaking their heads and walking out of the room. So uh, I went back to school with an orientation towards being in medicine, first veterinary medicine, Mm -hmm. and then very quickly into human medicine, and uh, stayed sick, though, uh, when I was... uh, when I was uh, in my internship after I left medical medical school, I was in Michigan. I moved to Honolulu and uh, just wanted to get out of Michigan. Moved to Honolulu, worked at the Queens Medical Center as a uh, surgical intern. Yeah. And uh, I developed severe abdominal pain. They did ex- exploratory surgery on me and found, well, they really didn't find I had appendicitis. I just hurt. But they took my appendix out anyway. Oh, what the heck? We're in there. Lighten them up. Yeah, they really, they did. And uh, nobody asked me about the three hot dogs with hamburger relish that I had at night before I went to bed. And I was on a roll. Well, I was so fat. I, I weighed uh, about 230 pounds. So you were literally rolling. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm 150 now. Wow. And I was 230. And then what happened was uh, I finished my internship and I didn't want to leave, leave Hawaii. Just, you, know, you can imagine, one to stay oh, in yes. Oh, yes. So I moved to the big island uh, where the plantations are, the sugar plantations. Mm-hmm. And at, at the big island, I got a job as a sugar plantation doctor. Now, this is a really, really interesting heritage because there are no more sugar plantation doctors because there are virtually no more sugar plantations in Hawaii. But my Ma- job, Maui. Maui, there's one left. Yeah, there is. Uh, my job, they every place, and that's closing, by the way. Uh, I, um, I got a job working in a, uh, a feudal system. Mm-hmm. You, have, you, know, you have the king, the master, the manager, yeah. and then the, uh, the underlings, you know, kind of the managers. And then you have the workers, and it really was a futile system. And uh, I provided all the medical care for these people. I am three of the doctors. Uh, delivered babies, probably caught 100 of them. Uh, did brain surgery in the, in the middle of the night. Wow. I, I, had, I had to do everything. I had to be everything for everybody because we were way out in the country. Well, I have to tell you, I have to admit to you, I didn't do a very good job. Uh, my patients did not do well. And I blame myself because, you know, I didn't go to the top-notch medical school. I didn't go to the top-notch internship. And, you know, I was uh, a good student. I had a good memory, but I didn't really like to read medical articles. And so I figured I was just a plain, simple, lousy doctor. Well, <clears throat> I spent three years doing the best I could. I, I think my patients were real pleased with me when I sewed their wounds up, and I put their bones back together and made them straight. And when I lanced abscesses, but those are acute illnesses. Uh, 
the the thing that they didn't appreciate, and I didn't appreciate because you know the most joyous thing in life is helping other people, and I wasn't helping them. Uh, what I I didn't appreciate was that my patients with chronic disease did not get well. You know, my chronically fat people, my chronically arthritic. Uh, people with chronic heart disease, mm-hmm. chronic pain. No, no matter how many pills I fill, I fill for them, they just never, ever got well. So I thought I was a lousy doctor. Well, after three years being a sugar plantation doctor, doing those duties and realizing I really wasn't a happy doctor, I decided to go back into training uh, to become a board-certified internist, and I thought I'd learn all the the pearls of medicine, if I just went back and got some more training. Got upgraded. Uh, I missed something, obviously, because my patients weren't doing well. But one other thing happened during that three-year period of time Mm -hmm. at Onoka uh, Plantation on the Big Island is I had a chance to to know uh, a lot of people. I got got to know 5,000 people as their doctor. And uh, these people were first, second, third, and fourth generation Filipinos, Japanese, Chinese, and Koreans. Mm-hmm. First generation meaning they were born, say, in Japan or the Philippines. And then what they did is they moved to the big island to start a new, a new life. They would uh, get married, mm-hmm. have children, second generation, and then the second generation had the third generation. Well, living in Hawaii, they had supermarkets. And... Uh, the old ways of eating of rice, 90% of their diet rice, mm-hmm. and some vegetables and uh, very little meat and an occasional fish they caught. Uh, the old ways of, li- of living uh, had a population where 100% of the people in the first generation were thin, didn't have heart disease, breast cancer, colon cancer, multiple sclerosis, nothing. The second generation started to get a little fatter a little, little fatter and a little sicker. Uh, they had a few restaurants and a few supermarkets bringing in American food. Mm-hmm. I remember in 1994 in Hilo, Hawaii, they brought in the first McDonald's, and I was one of their first customers. <laughs> <laughs> I am one of their best customers. But you could just see it right in front of you. As the uh, generations mm-hmm. gave up the rice and picked up the American food, they got the American diseases. Now, what's, what's fascinating to me is, is you, you talk about this story in the book, is it flips the age paradigm on its head. The first generation would get old, and one would expect would get old and decrepit, and yeah. yet they were the healthy one, ones compared to their, their offspring. That's what happened. Yep, and it's because of the change of diet. You couldn't blame it on anything else. I mean, it had the exact same heredity. Mm-hmm. I've been changed in, in a couple of generations of genes. They had the same work. They did the same kind of work uh, on the plantation. So it wasn't that. Mm-hmm. It had to be the food. Now, I realized that at that time it had to be the food, and I also, for the first time, realized that I didn't have to get sick and old. I mean, not like other people did. I know you get old. Mm-hmm. I could stay healthy. That was good. And so I left the plantation after three years to get more training, and then I went to the medical library, the Hawaii Medical Library, and I developed a passion for reading science. Before that, I could care less about reading a, a medical journal. It didn't interest me. Medicine didn't interest me because I couldn't see anything happy coming out of it. 
You know, happiness comes from helping other people. And I just couldn't see me being happy because I couldn't see me helping other people. Well, anyway, I, I just started reading. And once I got interested in reading about, you know, common dietary diseases like obesity and diabetes, uh, my interest expanded to everything. I wanted to know about heart surgery, brain surgery, chemotherapy, arthritic drugs, everything. And I've been that way ever since. That I was probably I was I was probably about 27 years old, and since since that time, I, I've just uh, you know I just read and read and read scientific work, and I also publish it. So, what was your epiphany around that point? What did you start to 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 get your mind wrapped around? Well, I, it's you mean the diet could cure disease or cause yeah. disease? Yeah, all of the above. Cause disease was simple when I was taking care of my plantation patients. Mm -hmm. I could see some didn't get it, and those were the first generation. As far as curing disease, uh, I learned that from the uh, scientific articles in the library. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a guy named Walter Kempner. Uh, He did the uh, Rice Diet at Duke University. Mm -hmm. This started in 1939, and he was still practicing when I was... uh, Started practice, and he was writing journal articles in big in big journals. And what he would do is he would take people with severe kidney disease, severe malignant hypertension, the deadly kind, where you know the heart fails and the strokes are common. Uh, he'd take uh, people with obesity, uh, psoriasis, all kinds of problems, and really, 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 really sick people. And uh, he he came to the U.S. in uh, 1939 from Germany. Started his practice, excuse me, 1934 from Germany. Mm-hmm. Started his practice in 1939, and in the 40s he started uh, publishing his work out of Duke University. And in the 50s he did more publications, and actually other doctors started to get interested in his work. That lasted only a short period of time. And uh, what he would do is document all of the wonderful things that happened with, with photography, mm-hmm. uh, repeating KGs, and so on. And so it's absolutely clear to me, number one, that this is what a, a very effective therapy diet was. And number two, a diet of rice, fruit, juice, and sugar, because that's what they got. Mm-hmm. Was was it not only nutritionally safe? It was important to relieve the burdens of, of the patient and get them on to healing. That was uh, that was an epiphany for me is to learn what a simple diet could do in terms of being effective and how nutritionally safe it was. Let's let, let me go a, a couple different directions with this because I can hear people. The first thing that I can hear people saying is. But why would studies from the 40s or 50s or even back to the 30s, why would those matter now? Don't we know a lot more now so that we can kind of throw those studies out? Well, those are basic studies. Those are, those are studies done by men and women who wanted to know something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, weren't backed by industry. So, you know, they had a question. They worked at a university. The university had some funds. The uh, you know, the questions were simple. The costs weren't enormous. Mm-hmm. And so up until about 1980, you can trust most of the literature. Uh, after, after 1980, uh, the pharmaceutical industries and the food industries 
they figured out that uh, research was the best advertisement available for selling drugs and uh, foods to people. I just did a, <clears throat> I'm in the process of doing, of suing the, uh, uh, the egg industry uh, because they just put out in the dietary goals, uh, uh, the dietary guidelines of 2015, which came out January 7th of this year. Uh, they put in uh, statements about how cholesterol was not harmful. In fact, uh, they asked, the advisory committee asked the new guidelines. This is USDA the, guidelines? USDA, this is the, uh, the USDA guidelines mm-hmm. uh, for, for uh, uh, you know, for what we should eat. And so uh, it just came out January 7th. So anyway, the uh, the dietary guidelines uh, committee, advisory committee, uh, they are manned by a uh, a group of people who work for the industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're heavily dominated by these people, the advisors to the dietary guidelines. So, so to pause you for a brief second, the people who decide what we're going to eat. Or, or, or what they're going to recommend, particularly for kids to eat, the food pyramid, yeah, all that stuff, yeah, are not are not scientists who are who are independent um, nutritionists. No, like Alex 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 Lichtenstein from Tufts, uh, she is uh, a, board, uh, a high level uh, board member for the A board. She also happens to be the uh, uh, controlling person for the dietary guidelines advisory committee. So she's she's eggs and she's on the USDA. Yeah, and that, about half the people are. They're, you know, they got. Uh, if you if you read my January 2016 newsletter, mm-hmm. uh, you'll see I, I got them in there. I got you know many of the people that work for the industries. And their membership to the industry and to the uh, uh, and to the advice advice that's being given. Uh, dietary guidelines for the U.S. started in 1980, and they mm-hmm. put it out every five years. And it was just it was just a, a top heavy with members from industry. So what they do is they um, <clears throat> they do studies that favorably affect their industry. Mm-hmm. And those studies are designed by people who know how to design studies to show that their products are good. For example, I, I wrote a book in 1986 and included a chapter on eggs. Mm-hmm. By that time, there had been hundreds of studies showing that when you feed eggs to animals and people, their cholesterols go up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also that when people eat eggs, their risk of heart disease goes up. And also, when they reduce their cholesterol intake, their heart disease goes down. I mean, hundreds of studies. So, in my first book on uh, nutrition in nineteen uh, uh, in nineteen eighty three, it was published in nineteen eighty three, called the McDougall Plan. I put in there that of the seven studies mm-hmm. that did not show eggs raised cholesterol and increased risk of heart disease, six were paid. <laughs> For, for by the egg industry, and we couldn't find the support for the seventh person. And now, this at this time, mm-hmm. 
uh, 93% of the studies that were evaluated for the recommendations on cholesterol and eggs were paid for by the egg industry. So where do we turn then for um, to get unbiased information? Because well, you, there, there's so much, as a layperson, there's both so much misinformation thrown about, and it becomes, there, there's, there appears to be even a, I don't know if we want to call it a discrediting campaign, but it, it really, those who we want to trust, we find out why we can't even trust them. That's why you have to go back to 1930. Mm. Okay? See, this heavy industry supporting of uh, research mm-hmm. didn't really start until research figured out this was the best advertising tool. Much better than a picture of Elsie the cow or Henry the hen. You know, I mean, they figured out the way you sell your product is you design your experiments to make the products look not only not dangerous, Mm -hmm. but actually helpful for you. So let's go back to the eggs. Everybody knows that eggs have lots of protein, Mm -hmm. lots of fat, Mm -hmm. lots of cholesterol. Everybody knows you have to have protein, and the more protein, the better. But what everybody and a more complete protein, a high quality oh, protein. Fine, high quality. <laughs> we, can get, we can get to that later. But what everybody doesn't know mm-hmm. and should know is that there has never ever been a case of protein deficiency ever reported in the entire world literature. I dug for it myself. The best I could come up with is some hint that people on um, what is it, heroin addicts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you could do that. Or if you got people to eat, to live on table sugar. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but on, on, not on any natural diet. So, okay. And uh, so, so first of all, they're selling a product that people don't need, mm-hmm. and they're convincing them that they do need it. It's called unique positioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a marketing tool, unique positioning. And then the, the other thing they... Uh, in addition to not telling them there's uh, no such diseases that come from it, uh, they tell them that uh, eggs are good for you. You need the protein. So uh, that's what the public learns. And how they do this, I'll tell you the trick on how they do this. Is uh, <clears throat> and This was published in my book back in 19, 1983. Is, uh, so we, we knew how to do it then. You can imagine how more sophisticated the egg industry is now. What you do is you take people as your candidate, as your subjects, and you feed them eggs, and their cholesterol doesn't go up. But what you have to have as a prerequisite is high cholesterol. (laughs) Yeah, right. They have already had to consume four to 600 milligrams of cholesterol a day. Mm-hmm. Well, almost every American every day consumes four to 600 milligrams of cholesterol a day, so any additional cholesterol makes no impact at all. So, so you just go out on the street, you pick subjects, come on in and be part of my subject. I wanna show cholesterol doesn't go up if I feed people cholesterol. So you get all these people saturated with cholesterol, mm-hmm. give them an egg, 
nothing happens. See? Eggs don't do anything with cholesterol. Now, if you take somebody who has a low cholesterol to uh, start out with, Frank Sachs did this, did this experiment. He took uh, lacto-oval vegetarians, mm-hmm. and uh, they were taking in 97 milligrams of cholesterol a day. Remember, you have to have uh, four, four to 600 before, before you can show no rise in cholesterol. Yeah. So he took uh, people with less, eating less than 100 milligrams of cholesterol a day, and they, he fed them one large egg, and their cholesterol went up 12%. So you do that. Or you do, you do studies with improper controls. Mm-hmm. You do studies that are too short in duration to show the rise in cholesterol. And uh, egg industry knows how to do that. So they got the money to pay for the studies. Of the 12 studies, the <clears throat> Dietary Guidelines uh, uh, Advisory Commission looked at, of the 12 studies, 10 were paid for by the egg industry. One was paid for by the fisheries industry to defend eating prawns. Hmm. And the, uh, the funding of the 12th study was not identified. And those are the 12 studies they used to say cholesterol does no harm and should not be a nutrient of concern. So these people are crooks. Uh, they plain and simple are lying. The consequence is to uh, kill fathers and uh, leave uh, orphans. They just don't give a damn. I mean, they just don't care. Uh, They're just down there trying to sell eggs, and they know that they're killing people and uh, making them fat. Also, all their fat leads to obesity. So that's the way business is. So let's switch gears from there, and, and let's look at some positives of what we can do for our health. And I want to talk about starches because you make a very compelling case that starches may actually be good for us. Why not? <laughs> I mean, consider the fact that all mm-hmm. large, successful populations of people throughout all of verifiable human history mm-hmm. have obtained the bulk of their calories from starch. No exceptions. So you're looking, you're talking about nine billion. You're talking about oh, more than that. Oh, we're talking about you know about nine billion people. Mm-hmm. You've got the people of the corn. You've got the people of the taro. You've got um, I don't know if they call them the people of the rice, but certainly Asia and rice. Yeah, sure. Uh, a, a good morning. Uh, you know, when I say good morning to you, in China, the good morning words are, "Have you had your rice today?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, uh, up until 1980, mm-hmm. 90% of the calories in China came from rice. And then they got wealthy. Mm-hmm. Over the last, last 35 years, what's happened is China has become one of the most wealthy countries in the world. And what's happened is they went from a population where fewer than 1% of the population had type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. for 1980 when their diet was 90% rice, to where the last report in 2013 was that 12% of the Chinese have frank diabetes and half of them are pre-diabetic. Wow. And obesity is rampant. 
and they cut their rice down mm-hmm. and they doubled their animal food intake mm-hmm. and they doubled their vegetable oil intake. So, I mean, how, how, how can anybody that's been alive any more than eight years not have seen this? Well, we can certainly see er- everywhere you look around us, we are, we're turning into a, uh, I think it's a Disney movie, a Wall-E society that, <laughs> that we're, we're, we're unhealthier, we're larger, our blood sugar levels are up, our triglycerides are up, yeah. and, and certainly we aren't making the big gains in life expectancy that one would expect with the technology we have today. Yeah, well, they, they say that this next generation is going to be the first generation to live shorter than any generation in the past. I've heard the statistics for diabetics and among kids is, is outrageous. It's something like one out of three are yeah. going to have diabetes or pre-diabetes by the time they're 18. Well, they predict by uh, two, 2030, mm-hmm. 15 years from now, 44% of the U.S. population will be obese. Not, not just fat, obese. And in some states in the United States, uh, down Louisiana, Mississippi, they predict uh, obesity levels up in, up in the 70%. So going, going back to starch, how yes. can starch be good for us? Well, let me give you the, the biggest argument against starch, and you know it so well, but it's starch turned into sugar, which turns into fat, and it's that fat coming from the sugar, coming from the starch, that's making us obese. That's why there are two billion Obese Asians who are, are obese. <laughs> I mean, come on. Open your eyes. <laughs> you know, if starch made people fat, mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, you know, 30 years ago, in, 19, in 1985, yeah. you wouldn't have had 2 billion Asians who uh, had stealth uh, figures. Because ninety percent of the diet came from rice. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen. Let me uh, let me tell you what. As you, I'll just repeat what you said. Uh, starch, yep. rice, turns to sugar. Yep. It does. It does. Which turns to fat. It doesn't. To convert sugar into fat, it's called de novo lipogenesis. Mm-hmm. The new production of fat is a very very inefficient process in human beings. Uh, it takes uh, uh, as little as three percent of the calories to do. Excuse me. It takes thirty thirty percent of the calories to do this, which is a very inefficient thing for the body to do it. So it doesn't do it when it has extra sugar in the body. Mm-hmm. The easiest thing to do with that extra sugar is to burn it off as heat through your skin, or exhale it through your lungs. That's that's what happens with sugar. Now, if you eat Thirty percent of the calories it mm-hmm. takes for that conversion. So that's, that's do, a high energy cost. It'd be nice if you could burn thirty yeah. percent of your calories just to do something with your calories. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, but they have to do it to, to, to convert it to fat. Yeah. And the other interesting kind of uh, opposite type of statement is to move fat from your fork and spoon mm-hmm. to your buttocks, thigh, and abdomen takes fewer than three percent of the calories. And, you know, it moves it so efficiently that you can tell the kind of fat a person eats mm-hmm. by biopsying their fatty tissues. You take a needle in their buttocks, thigh, abdomen, suck it out, take it to the lab, analyze the fat, and by the kind of fat that is predominant in that specimen, 
you can tell what they like to eat. If, if it's full of omega-3 fats, they're fish eaters. Mm-hmm. If it's full of margins and shortening, or excuse me, if they're full of trans fats, mm-hmm. and they're, they're eaters of margins and shortening. Uh, monounsaturated fats, olive oil, they're going to be full of monounsaturated fat. So it, it, it just effortless, and there's a reason for it. The body needs that fat mm-hmm. for storage. It's the metabolic dollar for storage for the day when the famine hits. Right. But the famine never hits. <laughs> you know, so people get, uh, people are out there saving for maybe 10 or 15 famines. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, that's why it's so easy to, to store. And there's really no limit to the amount of fats you can store. You see sometimes on city uh, news stations, you see, you see a story about <clears throat> how a, a, a tractor lift mm-hmm. comes in and picks up a guy who weighs 1,400 pounds wow. and takes him to the hospital. The only way they can move him. You, know, you, you can gain... Yeah, it's just limitless. So, so then going back to starches, then another argument would be that starches are going to whack our blood sugar levels. And we are we a society that, at best, we're all struggling with blood sugar challenges. Well, that's just people who eat the American diet are struggling. Mm-hmm. Good point. Half, half the people, half the people on the American diet are pre-diabetic. Mm-hmm. 14% are frank diabetic. Mm-hmm. So it's only people that who are on the American diet or Chinese diet or India diet who eat the Western diet who are Me- struggling. high protein, high quote unquote quality protein and low carbs. Yeah, low carbs. The fat's the bigger issue. Mm-hmm. The fat, fat paralyzes insulin, so it doesn't work. So that's why the blood sugar goes up. Uh, the purpose of eating is for the blood sugar to go up. That's why we eat. Mm-hmm. We have to have the sugar go up. Uh, so we can distribute it throughout the body and provide energy. That's why you eat. Now, because the sugar goes up after you eat, Mm -hmm. and because people with a disease called diabetes have high sugar, people have made the false connection between sugar naturally going up after you eat Mm -hmm. and a disease where the sugar is high because they have various problems. Uh, they have insulin resistance because they are so darn fat. Uh, the, the body just won't let more uh, fat be stored mm-hmm. in the fat cells. And uh, one of the mechanisms that occurs is the insulin becomes inefficient, insulin resistance. Right. So uh, the other way you get diabetes is you kill your pancreatic cells. And that's done uh, by a process called molecular, mo- molecular mimicry, which is caused by cow's milk protein. What happens is uh, the doesn't have to be a child. Uh, half the cases uh, occur over the age of 19. But what happens is uh, uh, people eat cow's milk protein, which is foreign protein, mm-hmm. and they have a leaky gut, and the cow milk protein goes into the bloodstream. And uh, the uh, immune system, particularly the lymphocytes, they interpret that cow's milk protein as a virus or a bacteria. It's a foreign substance. They make antibodies to 17 amino acids on the beta casein molecule. Mm -hmm. And so 
these antibodies produced by the lymphocyte are looking for those 17 uh, amino acids called antigens on the uh, on the beta casein protein. Well, those, those same 17 amino acids are present on the beta cells of the pancreas. Uh, those are the cells that make the uh, insulin. And so the column milk protein goes into the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. The lymphocytes do as they should. They go low look for these foreign proteins in a specific segment of uh, amino acids. And in their search for these uh, foreign proteins, they find similar proteins on the pancreas and they destroy the pancreas. It takes about uh, three to five years to destroy the pancreas. So you got that kind of diabetes too. But that has nothing to do, neither one of those processes, developing insulin resistance Mm -hmm. because you're just too darn fat or destroying your pancreas because you're consuming cow's milk. There are other reasons you get uh, type 1 diabetes, like viral infections and so on. But cow's milk is is the big player. Uh, To the fact that your blood sugar goes up after you eat, Mm -hmm. there's no connection at all. But, you know, how people think, you know, A to B. So let's let's talk uh, let's talk in this this last this last bit that we have together. You have a you spend in 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 the Start Solution. You spend about a third of the book on ways that we can he- eat healthier and literally start to roll some of this back, unravel in a sense the damage that we've done. And and so I wonder if you can talk with us about what a a healthier diet would look like and how much of a difference if we've eaten this way our whole lives. How, how how much healthier can we get? Okay. Well, a, a starch-based diet, you get 90%. That should be your goal. Mm-hmm. 70% may work. 90% of your food should come from common starches. They Such could as? Be rice, corn, potatoes, sweet potatoes, mm-hmm. beans, peas, lentils, uh, wheat, uh, barley. Okay. They're, they're starches. And starches are actually what they are is they're storage organs for, for plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, plants make sugar out of uh, carbon dioxide from the air and water from the ground. And with sunlight, they turn them into glucose. And then what they do is they stick these glucoses together into long chains called amylose and amylopectin. And then what they do is they store these long chains of amylose and amylopectin inside some cells. They just stuff them inside cells and stuff them in certain parts of plants. And the reason they are there is so that the next spring, after the plant dies, the next spring, the uh, sprout has the energy to sprout. So it's why, for instance, a potato sprouts right out of that potato, out of that energy sack. Uh, It has to have that energy. And the same thing with with a seed to germinate, mm-hmm. uh, like corn or rice. It has to be loaded with starch so that when it hits the ground yep. and the warm comes out, uh, it, it grows. So that's, that's what starch is. It's just stored energy for plants. But we, as human beings, uh, can tap into this. We have special enzymes, uh, amylase it's called. Uh, we have uh, uh, a lot of amylase. We have, on average, six times more amylase than a chimpanzee or a gorilla has. See, they're not starch eaters. I mean, they can eat some starch. Mm-hmm. And cats have no uh, no amylase because they're carnivores. 
this is interesting. I don't want to take us too off track, but I can certainly see an argument maybe coming from the paleo camp, which is that uh, we haven't evolved to eat starches, that starches are modern agriculture and our DNA uh, predates modern agriculture. No, they're just FOS. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't bother reading the science or the literature. They tell people, they, they tell us that people were hunter-gatherers before 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> you know, they, they tell us uh, uh, Lauren Cordain, the big guy, a big guy, uh, <clears throat> who, um, you know, teaches which, you know, a paleo diet with 55% of the calories come from coming from eating animals. Mm-hmm. And uh, the truth is, is you can go back in archaeologic history, published by archaeologists who published in the best medical journals available. There's no contrary information that shows that we were starch eaters uh, 44,000 years ago as Neanderthals. Wow. We were starch eaters uh, 30,000 years ago in Italy, and uh, Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. and that part of the world. Uh, there are three huge ex- excavations that show where starch is then. There's a, a place in uh, Africa, in Mozambique, where they show starch eaters 105,000 years ago. I mean, I can go through. I, I can go through 50 studies just like that for you. I can even take you back to 2.5 million years ago, where pre-Homo sapiens, mm-hmm. Homo people. We're star cheaters. So, you know, they, they can say what they want. They can say what they want in terms of a paleo diet, a hunter-gatherer diet, but they don't have the facts right. The truth is the truth. It's well published. And I, I want to tell you, and this may be the last time I think I get to say something to you. This whole hunter-gatherer thing, mm-hmm. it's got a, a more broad basis behind it in terms of human nature mm-hmm. than probably many people have thought about hunter-gatherers. Who are the gatherers? Grandparents, mm-hmm. women, mm-hmm. children. Who are the hunters? By that logic, the guys. It's called sexism. <laughs> yeah, it is called sexism. And in every culture, except a few we could get into, like the Inuit Eskimo, Mm-hmm. In every culture, the bulk of the food was obtained by the women and children and grandparents. But who got the glory? You know, the guys who went out with their, their sticks and maybe after a couple of weeks they found something that they were fast enough to kill. Mm-hmm. And then they ran like hell back to the village before it rotted. It's, it's, it's just, it's so, it's so logical that we were never except in you know, small situations like the Inuit Eskimo. Mm-hmm. We were never hunters with the emphasis on hunting. We were always hunter-gatherers, gatherers in any large population. You can find some isolated places like the, uh, the Maasai mm-hmm. you know, and a few other people. But any population, any substance, you, you cannot supply the energy needs of a large group of people by the animals. There just aren't that many animals unless you do something like we do today, which is factory farm, and, and, and then machine these animals out. But uh, never in a natural environment could you go out and hunt and uh, attain enough food. So, 
so before before we wrap things up, um, you said earlier ninety percent of calories we want to come from starches, and you listed a bunch of those. Yeah. What do we expect to see from that? Okay. Uh, by the way, the rest of your calories come, come from non-starchy mm-hmm. things like kale and broccoli and cauliflower, which, by the way, some of your listeners are trying to live on it, and they're starving to death. These nutritarians are starving to death. So, so um, And, and uh, nutritarians, that's Dr. Joel Furman. So <laughs> real briefly, before we go too far, too far uh, into that rabbit hole, what are they? They're missing out on the starches. That's what you're saying? They don't have the calories. They don't have the calories. You've got to have the calories. Otherwise, you're starving to death. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> you got to eat. You got to eat 12 pounds of cabbage a day mm-hmm. to get your 1,500 calories. You can do that with four pounds of potatoes. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's just physics. It's just math. All right. So what happens? Yes. Uh, you can uh, go uh, go to my most recent paper published, which is in the Nutrition Journal, mm-hmm. October of 2014. You can see results on. 1,615 of my patients that I run through our live-in center in Santa Rosa, California. And what we see is in seven days, mm-hmm. at least people are force-fed. They eat as much as they possibly want or can. They can take food back to their room. It's delicious food. I, you have to believe me. It is delicious food. Uh, my wife has worked a long time to make sure these things taste good. Mm-hmm. These are the official published unchallenged results of our program. Uh, the average weight loss is 3.1 pounds. The average drop in blood pressure is 18 over 11 millimeters of mercury if you started with high blood pressure. And most of these people are on that, blood That's in only a week. Seven days. That's, that's, um, that's more than many of the medications. Yes, and without all the problems. 18 over 11 millimeters of mercury drop and people who had high blood pressure, which is 140 over 90. Mm-hmm. And most of these people are on medication. And in most cases, we took them off all their blood pressure medications. Uh, blood sugar went down a little bit. We took close to 90% of the people off all of their blood sugar medic- medications. Cholesterol. Our average drop in cholesterol was 23 points, mm-hmm. changing no cholesterol-owing medications, 23 points in seven days. If your cholesterol started at 240 or higher, the average drop was 39 points in wow. seven days. That's better than you can get with statins. Uh, people felt great. Their indigestion went away. Constipation disappeared. Their greasy skin went away. Uh, they got started to get their energy back. Uh, the acne started to heal up. We heal a lot of problems in people. Some, it, sometimes it takes longer. We have extremely good results with inflammatory arthritis, mm-hmm. uh, like lupus and rheumatoid and psoriatic arthritis. And that's all, by, by the way, published either in my newsletter or in scientific journals. Now, that's seven days. We also did a study at Oregon Health and Science University, the medical school in Portland, which we started in 2009, finished in 2013. It's been presented at two meetings and is in two abstracts and is in the process of being published in a uh, full-fledged medical journal. Uh, this was a one-year study. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we found is that uh, we, there was uh, a, a, a controlled, greater-blinded study, yep. randomized. Okay, so we took two groups, and we intervened in one group with our diet. They learned at our clinic. In the other group, they were the controls. 
what happened at the end of the year? And by controls, meaning they ate what they ate. They ate what they ate, American diet. At the end of the year, the control group uh, had a fat intake in their diet of 40% of the calories. Mm-hmm. The intervention group who came to our, our clinic had an, a 15% calorie intake. Mm-hmm. So for a year, they maintained a drop in calories from 40% to 15%. We analyzed uh, how uh, compliant they were. Yep. And to the best we could estimate, using great food frequency questionnaires, 85% of the people follow the diet for a year 100%. You know, people say, well, you we'll diet, we do diets, but, but they won't follow. Well, that's just plain and simple not true. 85% of people follow the diet 100% for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, cholesterol drops. We got a 20-point drop in cholesterol, which was maintained for a year. Yep. We got a 20-pound 20 20 drop in body weight, which was maintained for a year. Huge. And these, it's huge. It's unreported anyplace else. Uh, and it's because of the way we have our clinic set up. Uh, we, do a, we do a good job. We've been doing this for about 28 years. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what you should expect. You can get the same results at home. People always do. They don't even come to the clinic. Not only is everything they need to do in the books that I've written, you mentioned the Starch Solution. I have 12 national best-selling books. But if you go to my website, which is, www. I know you wanted to give this, but I'll do it. <laughs> www.drmcdougall.com. You will find that essentially everything is free. Mm-hmm. 600 recipes, all the rules, menus, all the stories about multiple sclerosis and our results. You can go to the May 2014 newsletter and see 10 severe cases of rheumatoid arthritis that were cured. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see how I treat high blood pressure. How uh, we essentially cure 100 percent of type two diabetics, and this is all very scientific stuff. I mean, this is not just something I dreamed up. This is based on solid science published in the medical journals, and you learn how to do it. And if you put a little bit of effort into it, there's nothing hidden there at all. You can do exactly what I suggest, get exactly the same results, uh, and you can get it for absolutely free. Now, what you can't do. If you can't go to Hawaii with us, we got back from Hawaii two days ago with a group of 70 people. Uh, you can't go to Alaska with us because it's sold out, and that'll be in June of 2016. Uh, but we're going back to Hawaii uh, in uh, January of 2017. You can't come to my 10-day program and have me or one of my doctors officially take care of you and become your doctor and advise you on giving off your medications and what treatment you do need or don't need free. We don't do that. So, uh, but all the knowledge is there in, in all practical terms without any exaggeration as to how available, accessible, inexpensive, free. You save food on your food bills, getting off your medication. It, it's just all there. It's a gift that we, we, we give. Mary and I decided to give this, this away a long time ago because we got such a, you know, we got such a gift ourselves mm-hmm. 40 years ago. And uh, we're so appreciative of what we were given. And as I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, you know, real happiness comes from ha- helping other people. I get, I get 50 letters a day from people that tell me, you know, they're off their blood pressure pills, they avoided heart surgery. You know, it, it just goes on and on and on. You can't imagine how good that makes me feel. 
there's a question I ask all, all guests at the end, and I, I think you may have already answered that, which is what brings you the greatest happiness or what I call the factor. Uh, you know, since I get happy from helping other people, mm-hmm. the sickest people make me the happiest. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. And boy, I, I tell you, I get some sick ones. And we get people that we have... Uh, 10% of their kidney function left, mm-hmm. you know, 20% of their heart left. So they, and of course, they don't get complete, completely cured, but they get a chance to stay alive and, and uh, more functional for a lot longer when mm-hmm. they do this. But uh, I have a, a, a doctor that works with me, uh, does a lot of the real duties like doing H&Ps and so on. And after every program, Mm-hmm. You know, he is so overwhelmed. He stands up in front of the crowd and he says, I cannot believe what I just saw. We just took three patients off of 100 units of insulin. Their blood sugars are better. We just took the uh, next number of patients off all their blood pressure pills. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the audience is sitting there. There are patients and they're going, yep, yep, yeah, you did. You did that. And they, everybody's amazed except for the fact that it's so simple and basic. Here it is. Alcoholics suffer from alcohol poisoning. Mm-hmm. If you take the alcohol poison away, you get miraculous results. Smokers suffer from nicotine and tobacco poisoning. You take it away, and they get cured. People suffer from food poisoning, and I put it into two categories. One category is animal foods. That's one category of food poison. Mm-hmm. In fact, when you go to my website, look up Doc- Dr. McDougall's Colored Picture book on food poisoning, and how to cure it by eating beans, corn, peas, and sweet potatoes. So you got these two categories of food poison, animal foods mm-hmm. and vegetable oils. And that's real easy to remember. But then when you take those two categories away, people say, I have nothing to eat. That's my whole diet. I have nothing to eat. Until you start telling them the starch story. Until you start telling them their diet is starch. I mean, don't you like uh, pasta and marinara sauce? Don't you like uh, mashed potatoes? You know, don't you like rice and mushu vegetables? Don't you like waffles and pancakes? You know, pretty soon the whole world opens up for them. What has to happen is people need to have a clear and simple message. Mm -hmm. Because the the truth is simple and easy to understand. So they need that message. And uh, once they see it, they have their eyes open to that simple message. They're just, as a whole percentage of the population, just like we, we found out smoking those, those killing us. There's, there's a whole segment of the population just, just, just standing out of my way. You know, I, I want to enjoy my granddaughter. I want to I want to continue to play tennis. Get out of my way. I see it. But then there are a lot of people are, who stay in denial for a while. Many of them cross over, too. And there are a lot of suicidal people out there, too. They just don't give a damn you know, I hate to say. Any last words of wisdom for people? No, I, I, I think you should believe that the human being is supposed to be healthy mm-hmm. and good-looking mm-hmm. and functional and that there's nothing wrong with you in most cases. You're just plain and simple suffering from food poisoning. You, do, you can get your health back for free. You can do the planet a tremendous amount of good if you make this change because we are dying because of livestock production. The planet is going to be extinct, mainly because of livestock production. So if it's not 
your diabetes or your fat buttocks or, you know, whatever that's troubling you. Think about your grandkids in the future. We have a world to change. That's, that's the last thing I'd like to say. Those who know have the responsibility to do. And we have a world to change. Amen. Well, um, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. This has been fantastic. And I recommend everybody go to your website, check it out. There are so many topics we didn't cover that I'm sure are on the website and in his books from soy, sodium, calcium supplements, vitamin D, tanning beds, glutens, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, there's a lot. Of, it may surprise them as to what I say about things like <laughs> vitamin, vitamin D and calcium and things like that. You may be surprised because uh, I have a very solid scientific opinion, which I'm just not going to hedge. The things that I tell you are correct, and you will see that. I've worked at this 40 years, and uh, I've been open, open-minded enough to when I have made an error or uh, said something that was uh, not... <coughs> You know, that was an exaggeration. I've had 40 years to correct it. I back down from nothing. I love it. It's true. Well, thank you so much, John. For, All right. For really? everyone out there, this is Michael Sandler saying, be well, have fun, check out the Start Solution, and shine bright. Woohoo! Hey, everyone, thanks so much for watching. If you enjoyed it, be sure to like, like below. Also, leave your comments. Have some real fun with it. Subscribe to our channel where you're going to get more great videos, more interviews coming up. And check out our website, inspirenationshow.com. That's where you'll find tips, blogs, information, videos you won't find anywhere else. And you... Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.